Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Living the Truth, with a message titled, Job One for Every Pastor. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 9, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I had been a pastor for a little over 35 years when I accepted the calling to come to Back to the Bible Canada. And early on, someone asked me if I ever dreamt of going on my own and starting my own media ministry apart from Back to the Bible Canada. Well, I honestly said I had no such temptation, none at all. The only temptation I ever fought with was the temptation to go back to pastoral ministry. I mean, even if that ministry would be a church of just 100 people. I've always believed that the pastoral ministry is a high calling. I think it was Spurgeon who once said, if God has called you to be a pastor, don't take a step downward, become a king. I think that captures the essence of what I think as well. I guess what I'm saying is at the outset of our study of 1 Timothy 4, 6-9, I want to give the impression that when I speak of pastoral ministry, I'm not speaking about theory. This was my life. I didn't try it for a few years and then run to something else. I fully embraced this calling. I didn't think about how many hours I would work a week. Instead, I embraced the life of a pastor or the calling upon my life and the work to which I gave myself. Now, I say all of this not just to give the impression that I know the calling and the work, but also that I have thought much about what that work actually entails. More than once, I would ask myself, what is my work? And I was more than aware from my reading and from a number of seminars that I attended that there are all manner of different theories about what the main function of the pastor or the shepherd or the elder is all about. See, I like to talk about the three big contenders, the business model, the therapy model, and the scholar model. The business model is the model that portrays the pastor as a kind of a leader that will propel the church to growth. You know, it's the view of the pastor both as a CEO and as a visionary leader whose leadership style propels people to follow and who launches the church into numerical growth. Well, the therapy model is the model of the pastor as a counselor, as a friend and a mentor and a spiritual director. It's the idea that pastors spend a great deal of their time doing one-to-one ministry to troubled souls or lost souls or people in pain or need to find direction in their lives. So that's the model of the pastor as a counselor, a trusted minister to whom one can safely confess sins and receive assurance of God's forgiveness. I call that the therapy model as opposed to the CEO model. And the third model of the ministry sees the pastor as a theologian, someone who's both an apologist, that is a defender of the faith in a world of unbelief and also has the depth of theological insight into various theological issues, be they historic issues or contemporary ones. Now, there are other possible theories of ministry for pastors. You know, for some, the pastor should be a good enough entertainer to wow the crowds, or to others, he should be a facilitator or a chaplain while others get things done. They're everyone's friends, but others directly lead the church. Well, the crazy thing about all these competing views of pastoral ministry is that various people in the church actually hold these varied views and want their pastor to work within a view that conforms to their understanding. And at some point in time, every church needs to figure out what is the ultimate priority for the pastor. 
And if they don't, they'll merely have unspoken expectations leading to misunderstanding. Now, when we come to 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, we come close to describing job one for any pastor. And we will notice the verse says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now, quite often, students of the Bible will wonder what these things are. So there are two options. One might argue that these things refers to everything that Paul has written in the book of 1 Timothy. And that would include remaining in Ephesus, not running away because it was a big task. It would also include charging certain people not to teach false doctrines. And it would also include teaching the church about, you know, the proper use of the law, encouraging prayer as a part of church life, prayer for all people. It includes putting principles into place for the selection of worthy elders and deacons, so forth. Do all these things and you will be a good servant. Now, that might make sense, but as a general rule, it always seems best that when we come to these connecting passages, like this one, that we should apply it to the immediate context. And the immediate context is a warning that comes to Paul from the Holy Spirit in which the Holy Spirit warns that there will be people who will depart from the faith and it'll do so because they're led astray by false teachers who are inspired by doctrines hatched up by demons. And that seems right here in this passage. And so that these things that Paul's referring to means that Paul expects Timothy to put these things, that is, the coming threat of massive false teaching and the consequent apostasy of some, to put these things or submit these things or make sure that the brothers and sisters in the church are informed about these things. Now, I've been talking about what are the most important things that a pastor, elder, or church leader can do. You know, one of the tasks of a shepherd of sheep is to protect the sheep from danger. There are wolves out there who wish to tear the sheep apart, and a good shepherd makes sure the sheep are protected. You know, on that note, we might remember Jesus teaching on that very topic. John 10, 11 to 13 records Jesus as saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. See, the key feature of any good shepherd is that he keeps the sheep safe. And that safety may include predators of any kind in the congregation. So allow me to pat myself on the back for a little bit. I remember once having a married youth worker, and he was writing love notes to one of the students. The family of that student brought it to my attention, along with the emails that he had sent. And I made sure I got all the information right, and in very short order, I had that person removed from staff, also from any activity with youth, and called upon him to enter into an accountability relationship. Instead of submitting, he was angry, left the church in a huff, And he said all manner of slanderous things against me. That's okay. I'll never forget meeting with the mom and dad along with their grade 12 daughter. We talked about how we could ensure that our ministry would remain safe for everyone. We also prayed together. But I'll never forget what the dad told his daughter in my presence. He said, honey, I told you if we told the church, they'd protect you. See, I've treasured that comment for many years. It's What I always want to be true, predators won't be protected. 
You know, but here in 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, the protection means to alert the flock of false teaching. Put these things before the brothers. See, all spiritual leaders of God's people must have a burden of teaching things that are both positive and negative. Make sure the doctrinal footing of the congregation is solid. Many have suggested that the Greek word for put as, you know, put these things before the brothers, it can also be translated as suggest these things. I mean, perhaps that's not quite the right translation, but it does give a sense of the thing. The idea is that when talking about false teaching, the pastor's words must be moderate and not extremist. Doesn't mean the pastor doesn't point out false teaching when it happens, but rather it's done in an even tone. The idea is that he doesn't shout and accuse, but rather he patiently teaches. He's careful, showing why a doctrine is false, why that matters, what the Bible teaches, how God's people should respond. That's the kind of approach that helps the church remain loving and at the same time aware of false teaching. Now, says Paul, if you do this, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, the word for servant, that's diakonos or deacon. But here, Paul doesn't say that it's a a task for deacons. Rather, he means that when Timothy is patiently teaching and exhorting and warning and encouraging, he should be seen as a servant of Christ. And then in order to emphasize that, Paul adds, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. And it's right here that I think we come close to job one. A pastor, when he's a good servant of Jesus, if he's an expert on anything, is an expert on the corpus of Christian truth. He can articulate the doctrines of Scripture in a manner that's understood by all and can be applied to everyday life. And that's the idea of the shepherd as a protector of the flock. The flock has been won to Christ by the work of the Spirit. Once they're in Christ, the shepherd ensures that they remain in Christ. Yeah, false teachers will arise, sure enough. They'll cause some to depart from the faith, but the faithful shepherd, the one who's a servant of Christ, will say, ah, but not on my watch. While God gives me life and breath, I will ensure that the teaching and disciple and training ministry in this church can be trusted. Good shepherds believe they're called upon to protect the flock. For many, the most misunderstood truths of the Bible revolve around the reality of heaven and hell. Misshapen by popular culture and misinformation, many Christians fail to have a true understanding of eternity. In response, Dr. John Newfeld and Back to the Bible Canada present a new book, Heaven and Hell. As we believe the truth about eternity is so critical, for the month of November only, this important book is now available for free as our gift. Bruce Ware, professor of Christian theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote about the book, it is arguable that nothing in this life now matters more than knowing what happens then. Although this book is relatively short, it is packed. Readers will find excellent biblical exposition and incisive analysis that will inform their minds and inflame their hearts. To request your copy of Heaven and Hell today, or to send a gift to support the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 was a command for Timothy to ensure that Timothy views his primary role as a defender in the church, one who will ensure that others remain faithful to the Lord. And then we come to verse 7a, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Now notice here, Paul has moved from defending the truth against satanically inspired false teaching onto something else. We move from false doctrines meant to confuse and deceive and to entice people to abandon the faith, or as I said last time, the one truth once for all delivered to the saints. Now, Paul has dealt with that, and now he sees another threat. And this one is the threat of irreverent and silly myths. See, on the one hand, Timothy is called upon to take on false teachers head on, show them their error, and correct them in a winsome way. But when it comes to myths, well, Paul has a very different approach. Simply avoid the foolish nonsense things. In short, you know, Paul doesn't want Timothy to even bother arguing with this kind of thing. So we might wonder here what Paul has in mind. But if we go back to chapter 1, verse 4, Paul spoke about myths and endless genealogies that promote speculation. Well, I remember years ago being given a book that was called The Bible Code. And if there ever was a piece of dribble, I mean, that was it. It claimed to put numerical values to all Hebrew letters in the Bible, and then it claimed that you could find a secret Bible code in which you could find a prophecy from everything to the assassination of the once Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin, and then so forth. And I remember once being given another book. It claimed that the U.S. had not been keeping the sabbatical year in the Old Testament, and so in the coming year there would be a, a severe economic downturn in the U.S., and all manner of people were visibly upset. Of course, it was a myth. Nothing happened. In our day, the amount of conspiracy theories that are sometimes traded in Christian circles can feel troublesome. And the faithful minister will remember that he doesn't have enough time to chase all those myths down. There are too many. And besides, should he do that, he'll spend all his time on this matter. Paul says the best way to deal with this, ignore it. Carry on in teaching the faith so people will be more fascinated with what the Bible actually teaches and how relevant it is to their lives rather than listening to some huckster claim that they've died and gone to heaven and have some fresh revelation that awaits us there. Just avoid the myths and get on with the business, says Paul. Now, having dealt with how Timothy is to deal with false teachers and with myths that commonly swirl around the church, Paul next gives some directives to Timothy himself. And it turns out there's so much more to pastoral ministry than leading and teaching and caring. Indeed, Paul is now greatly concerned with Timothy's self-care. In his very famous book, Lectures to My Students, the great English preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that the most important tool that any Christian minister had was himself. Not his books, not his training, not his ability to speak or put together a sermon and even to teach. Spurgeon says it was the man himself, and I think Paul would have said the same thing. So return again to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 7-9. to Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So don't give your attention to all the myths that are constantly floating around. Instead, use your time wisely. Train yourself. Now, in order to make that point, Paul goes to the world of athletics. And what he says there was not only true then, it's just as true now. We all know that among high-performing athletes, 
Constant physical training is essential. I remember watching an interview with an NFL quarterback. Many consider him to be the greatest quarterback of all time. And he said that the further he rose and the greater his accomplishments, the more training that was demanded of him. You know, at first it seemed counterintuitive. I thought, no, no, once you master the skills of your trade, it shouldn't be as hard as before. It should be a matter of muscle memory, repeating the things that you've mastered. But the more I thought about it, I realized I must be wrong. To reach the level of performance he had, it required a great deal of physical training. And if he stopped training, he would revert to a lower level. And if he sought to better himself, he'd have to work harder than he'd ever done before. And it's with that in mind that Paul tells Timothy, if you're going to be a good pastor, you'll have to go into training. And for some of us, that sounds strange. Now, of course, we're used to pastors having been trained. I mean, I was trained. I did the obligatory studies in both Greek and Hebrew. I found Greek easier than Hebrew. I also learned to outline passages and watch for grammatical cues or signals that help me to understand the meaning of any text. I took courses on Hebrew culture and the Greek culture at the time of the New Testament. I studied both biblical theology and systematic theology. I I took courses on church history, including its great leaders. I, I learned the theology of the Reformation. I also took courses on church leadership. On and on went my training, but I found I wasn't done when I finished seminary. I found out that all that intellectual training didn't yet deal with the greatest matter of my soul. I was given to envy, I found, and pride and self-seeking attitudes of which my seminary training did next to nothing. And I needed to learn more about how to be gracious, even with those who were less than gracious to me. My training was never finished. Look again at verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. And when Paul says bodily training is of some value, he's not referring back to the earlier part of the chapter when he's speaking about, you know, the false teachers, the ones who forbade marriage and abstinence from certain kinds of food. Paul's not saying, you know, abstaining from certain kinds of food has some value. It doesn't. He's already made that point. Rather, Paul's using the analogy of the games. A runner, a javelin thrower, any other kind of athlete will know that bodily training is of some value. Now, we might pause and say, no, no, Paul, it's not just some value, it's of great value. You know, and for us today, we might say, it's important to keep your body fit. It will lead to great results in terms of, you know, the quality of your life. And Paul would agree with that. You know, keep in shape, improve your quality of life. That's of some value. So why does he say, only some value? And the answer must be that Paul's thinking in eternal terms. If you stay in shape, you know, as the present athlete is in prime shape, the value of that lasts no longer than the present life. I mean, after 70, 80, 90 years, all the benefits you receive from that come suddenly to a crashing end. It's only of some value and of no value in eternity. On the other hand, godliness is of value in every way. If you learn to subdue the flesh, if you set your heart on things above, if you think about things that are good and holy and pure, if you make a practice of prayer, if you regularly read and apply the scripture to your life, if you practice deeds of kindness and mercy to others, 
if you make a practice of being thankful in all things, if you learn to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and respond to his promptings, and if you seek to incorporate every experience that you have under the Lordship of Jesus, finding moment by moment delight in him, this very thing is valuable in every way. Paul can't think of an area in life that isn't benefited by training in godliness. Paul goes even further. Yeah, godliness holds promise in the present life because it positively affects everything in the present life. I mean, consider the man or the woman that's trained himself or herself to see everything under God's providential and loving hand. Now, consider what happens to that person when tragedy strikes, something that would reduce everyone else to despair. But the godly man or woman knows at the outset that God's providential hand has laid the groundwork for everything and that God is concerned that everything we go through is preparing us for the best possible eternity. See, I mentioned this to say that the godly are the strongest and the happiest people on earth because they see God's purpose in everything. They have trained their senses. But of course, Paul makes the point if it is only an advantage in this life, well, it would like, you know, like bodily training only have some value. But godliness, the godliness that we learn here and now, has value in the life to come. It is, Paul knows, that what we learn here will help us in the life to come. And then in verse 9, Paul simply reinforces that matter. That this saying that the value of godliness is a trustworthy saying, that it is a truth that can be relied on. So for the pastor, what in fact is job one? See, while it is necessary to protect the flock, and it is necessary for the pastor to remain on track in training the people of God, job one seems to be that the pastor is trained in godliness. The best blessing the pastor can offer his flock is that he is a man of God. Thanks for your message today, John. Help me out here. What do you think are some of the necessary disciplines that anyone going into ministry should include in their lives? Well, I'm certainly, I mean, I would say um, just the very basics is uh, regular reading of Scripture, and you should read through the Scripture numerous times regularly. The, the prayer, especially for the people that you lead, that's a part of it. But you would also ask the Holy, always be asking the Holy Spirit to fill you afresh so that you would live a life of holiness. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Living the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld focus on the use of expositional teaching of the Bible, a verse-by-verse, in-depth discovery of Scripture, allowing the Word of God to speak for itself, understanding its context, eternal relevance for today, tomorrow, and for the life of every believer. Sarah wrote to say, I so appreciate this teaching by Dr. John Newfeld. This message has come at a very important time. I am grateful for the wisdom and insight. And we're grateful for all of our listeners, but also that God's timing is perfect and that the Word of God taught faithfully speaks directly into the life of every believer. 
And don't forget this month that Dr. John's newest book, Heaven and Hell, is being made available for free simply for the asking. So call us today to request your copy or to make a ministry gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.